Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time a turning point in Ukraine's resistance as Russian troops are forced to flee from dozens of towns and villages outside Kharkiv in the northeast of the country, including Kupiansk, an important railway hub and one of Russia's key supply routes to the east. There are suggestions that the invasion forces were outwitted after Russia redeployed troops to Hershon in the south of the country, where Ukraine launched another recent offensive. That left the invading army stretched in the north and vulnerable to this latest series of attacks. We'll be getting a view of life inside Ukraine from Zarina Zabrisky, who is in Odessa. She's a regular correspondent for Byline Times and other outlets as well, who has recently been to Chernobyl, amongst other places. Before that, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It's our brilliant monthly newspaper edited by Hadith Matharu. We can report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. There is no millionaire backer, no corporate interest telling us what to say. So please, if you can, subscribe to the Byline Times. You get more details at our website bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you very much indeed. So then to Odessa and Zarina Zabrisky. Zarina, welcome once again to the Byline Times podcast and Byline Radio. Great to hear from you. And it sounds like, and I don't want to trivialise this because we're talking about war and the deaths of people, but it sounds like a, a good moment for Ukraine at the moment. Well, yes, Adrian, and thank you for not taking it lightly, because when we are speaking about success and advances at the front, of course, the first thing that comes to my mind is the amount of um, wounded and unfortunately dead, because as uh, military experts say, uh, the side, the part that is advancing loses three to one compared to the adversary. So um, that should be remembered. But having said that, yes, uh, I just came back from the central street in Odessa, Deribasovska, and the whole street is dancing, there are flags everywhere. Of course, Mind you, they were dancing every weekend <laughs> in summer uh, and like starting early spring. But the atmosphere is different. Like you could feel that people are celebrating and there is this certain silence or certain expectation. It's very special. And I realise, of course, that if you're inside Ukraine, you may be aware of things that cannot be reported for fear of putting Ukrainian troops in danger. But are you getting the same reports as we are then, that these towns and villages outside Kharkiv, including Kupiansk, have now been taken back by Ukraine? Well, uh, thank you again. Brilliant point. And uh, too many journalists inside and outside of Ukraine are getting carried away or what they call here hype, starting to report a little bit ahead of the official news. Uh, the reason we shouldn't be doing that is because that could come at the expense of human lives, of the defenders, because the Russian side has a habit of attacking or before the, this whole thing, at least for now, it looks like they're running, but they do have a habit of attacking the 
villages, the settlements, the towns that are announced to be taken or liberated by the Ukrainian side. So it's critically important not to jump ahead of the official statements. So I always wait for the official uh, updates, which they do at least twice a day. But the mood in Odessa at the moment is buoyant and people presumably are responding to positive stories they're getting from friends, from family members and from reports on social media as well. It doesn't mean that they already have control of it. There still might be street fights and fierce street fights going on. And also sometimes it goes back and forth for days. So again, important to have a certain patience and uh, wait. Mm. You and I have spoken previously, Zarina, about the nuclear power plant at Zaforista, but you've also been to Chernobyl, of course, the scene of a, a nuclear disaster in years gone by. Just tell me about that. Well, the reason I have been visiting the nuclear power plants or trying to do so because the Parisian is not available for most journalists to visit unless you're working for the Russian government, you are not allowed inside. You can only come as close to being on the other side of the riverbank in the city of the Parisian. So I went there and we spoke uh, from there and that was an important moment. And another important moment for the Parisian today and not a week or not a day, I should say, without an important moment for the Parisia, because today the unit number six was disconnected from the Romanian power line, which means that the whole complex, the whole station was of energy and it was being shut down, which means uh, that it is going to switch on diesel fuel. And that's very dangerous, Adrian, because there's a limit to how much fuel they have available. And once there is no fuel to uh, power the station, the cooling system can stop working. And then the working reactor, number six, could overheat. And also, and very dangerously so, the nuclear waste can overheat. And this is a very, very simple take on it. Uh, If you want to know more details by now, I have a good article with a lot of details. I interviewed a lot of uh, experts, so there's a lot of good details there in the byline times. A nuclear, on the Parisian nuclear power plant, and another one in Euromaidan uh, press on what can go wrong at the Parisian station. And also there's a buy wire news new program that I'm doing on YouTube, and I give uh, pretty detailed breakdowns there. Uh, but I did go to Chernobyl to answer your question, uh, like making a little loop here. And here we have an air raid just started, sorry. You might even hear it, but... You have to go, by the way, if you do No, I, we don't go anywhere at this point. I mean, my, my, my bomb shelter is about 15 minutes away by the time I'm there. You know, the, if, if they are bombing us, you know, it will be history. And I'm downtown Odessa, so, you know... Very, very no, but... calm about it for a woman <laughs> under attack. <laughs> well, well, I mean, you know, just so that you know, today, I believe it's the 6th air raid in our area. Uh, So, you know, you get get used to it. So what I was going to say uh, is that in Chernobyl, I was able to interview a lot of staff, personnel who worked there under the Russian occupation and um, people who were in charge 
at the station, uh, the general director of the center that is responsible for the whole radioactive safety and security in Chernobyl zone. So uh, this is the person who's been there ever since 1986, dealing with the um, Chernobyl safety, radioactive safety. And uh, I have an exclusive story on the, if you remember, on the Red Forest trench digging by the Russians. Yeah. I got I got all the documents, I got the pictures, I drove by it, and it's coming um, next week on uh, Bywire News. It was absolutely fascinating to investigate the story, to actually see with my own eyes, because I myself couldn't believe it to the very end until I saw all the evidence. So that that's come. That was very interesting. But does that does that mean then that Russia's actions at Chernobyl uh, run the risk of releasing radioactive waste into the atmosphere, just to boil it down to basics? Well, yes, they have done it. They've raised a lot of radioactive dust in there. Fortunately, under the normal weather conditions, it settles down within 14 days locally. And because the local personnel and people who live there, because believe it or not, I met people who live in Chernobyl. And this is uh, another aspect of it. It's really fascinating. And I will be uh, talking to Heidi about that, too. So like bits and pieces will be coming to you. Lots of stories. But Back to the personnel and back to the uh, personnel knowing rather what not to do uh, means that the personnel was relatively safe, but the soldiers, the Russian military, ignored every single rule of radioactive security. And most likely, according to the experts I talked to, they put their health at grave risk. And to go back to uh, Zaporizhia, forgive me if my pronunciation isn't uh, perfect of that, the other nuclear power station there, but the, the, the nub of that argument, I'm looking at your article now at, at bylinetimes.com about that. The nub of that article is that if you de-energize the plants, that's actually the most dangerous moment. People might think, oh, well, the plants, the nuclear power plant is being switched off there, but the point yes. is that, that that leads to the can lead to the failure of the cooling systems and damage the active zone of the reactor plant and storage. So kind of switching it off, to put it in layman's terms, actually isn't an answer. It isn't an, a safe answer anyway. No, exactly. That's what I was trying to say. And I know it's not an easy concept, but by now I spoke to so many experts from both Zaporizhia and um, Chernobyl and some other experts as well, Western, and they all agree. There is a consensus that there are two dangerous parts, the nuclear reactor itself, which of course is not working at Chernobyl, and the nuclear waste, which both Chernobyl nuclear power plant and Zaporizhia have in a sufficient amount to make everybody's life very complicated, Adrian. And I mean, not only people in Ukraine, Russia and Belarus, I mean, people in the European Union and as far as Scandinavia. Uh, it's interesting that as we are speaking now live on Byline Radio, and of course this will be available on the Byline Times podcast after this date, but the date that we're speaking on is the 11th of September, 9-11, as the Americans would have it, and a day where we remember the 
thousands of people who were killed in those awful Islamist terror attacks on the Twin Towers. But you had a thought, I think, about state terrorism and the parallel really between what's going on in Ukraine and what happened on 9-11. Yeah, it, uh, exactly. It's a very meaningful date to me. It's, it's very meaningful to everyone. But for me, it has an extra meaning because I was actually booked to fly on United uh, 93. Wow. And the one that decided to fight. Yeah, and I changed the wow. at the last moment. And uh, I just lived with it and didn't talk about it for a long time for I mean I only spoke about it seven years ago just because I couldn't process it but it's definitely a special day which make you think about um, what is your destiny and what are you doing here because it's like almost you know it sounds trivial about the second chance but it's true you know I was supposed to be on that plane so yes it does make me think about the terrorism the whole terrorism concept because as the time we were just faced with a terrorism at that scale at that level which of course is not the beginning of terrorism because if you look at the history of terrorism the honor of having the first terrorist act belongs to russia and this were for revolutionary groups back in the 19th century late 19th century there was the people's will Volya groups uh, that uh, decided that they need to be killing the tsar and the certain prominent figures in the Tsarist Russia to change their um, society. So Russia has a very long history of terrorism. But not to go that back far in history, Putin himself started his reign uh, with exploding the buildings, the residential buildings in several cities, actually. And they're known as the residential, the apartment bombings. So I don't know if you, you're aware, Zarina, the most recent episode of the Byline Times podcast, I speak to... Uh, Dr. Yuri Falshtinsky, he's one of the co-authors of a book called Blowing Up Russia, which is about the apartment block bombings in 1999 when Putin was prime minister. Falshtinsky worked with Alexander Letvinenko, the former KGB and FSB colonel, on that book, believing that those uh, apartment bombings blew up over 300 people were a false flag attack. The number of apartment blocks, as you say, were attacked in cities, not just in Moscow. Oh, absolutely. It was used then by Putin, who was then prime minister, as justification for the second Chechnyan war and for a really brutal suppression, which strengthened his grip on power and paved the way for him to become president. That's exactly right. I know Yuri Filshtinsky very well. We worked with him on several projects and I interviewed him for my previous show and uh, he is the best expert to speak about that matter. Um, another good uh, person to talk to is David Satter. He wrote a book about that. But Yuri Filshtinsky is the leading one and of course he was there all alone and he knows it A to Z. But I was around too and it was a common knowledge. It was very very straightforward to clear uh, how it happened. And this is the strategy that Putin has been using ever since. He 
depicts uh, an external enemy. This is not a new tactic and not invented by Putin, obviously. It's uh, as old as the world. And so there's the scapegoat. In that case, it was Chechen terrorists. And, you know, it's a travel and scapegoat term because then it could travel currently at Ukrainians, but it could be anyone, really. And then uh, there, there comes the set of measures that the state should take to protect the citizens. And thus, uh, the, the state terror is justified. So, mm -hmm. uh, as you could see, nuclear terrorism is just another development, another step on that path. This is where the the conversation about Chernobyl, but especially Zaporizhia, comes into play, isn't it, really? Whether that is an example of state terrorism using this nuclear power plant in such a way that you're effectively holding the world to hostage and holding Ukraine to hostage with such a, a, a dangerous asset under your control and using it as a, a site of military conflict. Yes, and they've been doing it from the day one of the inv full-scale invasion on uh, February 24th. The first thing the Russian troops did, they entered from Belarusian border directly to Chernobyl plant and captured it. And I spoke to many people who were there at the time, who worked that shift. Um, so that shift was... Uh, inside the plant and they were about to leave and of course they were not allowed to go back to their satellite town of Slavutich which I also visited and they had to stay there in captivity working at gunpoint for over a month and I spoke to many people from the shift and they all told me how difficult it was and how dangerous it is because a person working at gunpoint and sleeping in a chair at their workplace are uh, likely to make a mistake. And a mistake at a nuclear um, power plant, and especially a, a troubled nuclear power plant at Chernobyl is, or Zaporizhia, because at this point it's troubled as well, since the Russian military have been shooting at the objects and infrastructure inside the territory of Zaporizhia. Um, so it's really on the brink of a disaster. Um, uh, speaking of Zaporizhia right now, Chernobyl, fortunately, was liberated in the beginning of April. And it has a number of issues as well right now they're dealing with, but it is not occupied by the military. You spoke just in the little preamble before we started officially recording this about going back to Odessa. You are a citizen of the United States, but you've got historical roots in Ukraine. And you said Odessa now feels like home. Yes, it does. It was it was very sweet to come back after uh, I've been on the road about 40 days, Adrian, and I missed Odessa really badly, especially August in Odessa is beautiful. But um, I'm actually thinking that I might travel now that the, the areas around Kharkiv are being liberated. I probably should go and report from there. And that takes me back. We didn't talk very much about the counteroffensive. So if it's okay, I'll say a few words about what Please, yeah, today. yeah, 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 yeah. Because I know a lot of people are interested and it's definitely the subject that needs to be covered. Yeah, um, yeah. So what we can say, we, we speak about strategies a lot today and I've been speaking about strategies this whole week. So this is where 
Russian strategy didn't stand up to Ukrainian military thinking. And that reminds me that many political analysts have been saying over the years that Putin is good at tactics, but he's not good at strategies. And that's where it shows, because Ukrainian military commandment uh, and Ukrainian authorities, they did this brilliant move. Uh, they kept talking about Kherson counteroffensive. And for those of you who have been following, you've heard that. And there was a lot of impatience and people were saying, oh, where is this Kherson counteroffensive already? And the Russians were making fun of it. Meanwhile, while talking about that, uh, the Ukrainian commandment used it as a deception. They pulled the troops to the north, to the Kharkov direction, and some to the east, to the Donetsk. So all three flanks of the front became um, the, the uh, uh, area for advancement. And then suddenly, which again is very, very important according to all the experts on the military science Suddenly, they hit Kharkov direction and Donetsk direction, and the Russians didn't expect it. And at this point, the Russian morale is really down because, you know, it's been a long time. They are not uh, very well supplied with the basics. They're not very well fed. And another important strategic point is that the Ukrainian troops now armed with the Western weapons were able to hit a lot of the logistics bases and warehouses and ammunition depots. So uh, you probably have heard that, like, I mean, Ammo Depot is uh, ruined. Ammo Depot is on fire. And they've been consistently destroying them. So by the time when they started counteroffensive on all three directions, a lot of Russian equipment simply were out of fuel and a lot of weapons didn't have the ammo. And so, as you could see, right now the Russians are uh, retreating or running as, as it's being reported, we see a lot of videos, and uh, there's a lot of jokes uh, that the best supplies of weapons to Ukrainians are the Russians. It's like the best land lease program because they live in a lot of working equipment. They can't take them. They have to run on foot or borrow civilian cars and so forth. Yes, so the, the Russians are uh, unwittingly through what they describe as a strategic redeployment, but which Ukrainians would see as running away, are actually gifting lots of this ammunition, lots of this artillery uh, to the Ukrainian army. And I mentioned the town of Kupiansk. This is a, a really significant hub, isn't it? If, if Kupiansk has been retaken by Ukraine because that's used as a supply line. It's a big railway hub to supply Russian forces in the east of the country. Uh, in Donbass, for example, one of the areas that was seized by Russia in 2014. So if these areas, and particularly Kupiansk, can be taken back, that is not only a, ter a blow in terms of morale for Russia, but it, it's actually a, a practical military advantage to Ukraine. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And both points are very important. The morale is critical and also in terms of the hub, in terms of the logistics, it is a very important move. And of course, you know, moving 
into the Donetsk Oblast is critically important for Ukrainian morale, which is already so high, because like you said, Adrian, uh, the Russians uh, annexed these areas and they, they first attacked them in 2014. So seeing uh, fights go, like going close to Liman in Donetsk Oblast or in the whole area, it's called Slobozhanshina, actually. The Luhansk, Donetsk, and Kharkiv oblasts all together are called Slobozhanshina. And that's a very disputed area, which uh, Russians claimed, because it's a traditionally, historic, historically Russian-speaking area, um, would be welcoming the Russian troops to show uh, that the local residents are meeting the Ukrainian troops back with tears, with with food, with hugs. Uh, it's a very, very important turning point in this war. So, yeah, we've got a couple of questions, uh, Zarina, that uh, listeners are asking. This is from Graham. He says, could this be Putin's nuclear bomb without actually launching one? Yes, Absolutely. They call it a dirty bomb, and pretty much every expert I spoke to said that that's a possibility and that, I, I mean, Putin blamed the Ukrainians of uh, having a dirty bomb, and he has a habit of gaslighting. So whatever he's saying or accusing others of, he has in mind. So that that's a pretty good indicator. But, but, so, so that's a question about Zafirizia, really, then, that, that could be effectively a nuclear weapon, Without yes. actually, they, they want they wanted to use Chernobyl as well, and mm -hmm. I will be talking about that in more details on uh, Heidi's uh, podcast, and then in my next show on Bywire. But that that's exactly right. Both Chernobyl and Zaporizhia were intended to and could become not not Chernobyl at this point, but Zaporizhia could be used as a dirty bomb. Mm. Uh, just one final thought, actually. Um, chatting to Yuri Felshinsky, and I would urge listeners to go and listen to the previous episode of the podcast where he does talk about the role of Gorbachev in allowing or encouraging the serialization of the book Blowing Up Russia in a, an independent Russian newspaper called Nova Gazeta. And that potentially could have put Gorbachev's life at risk, although when you hear Yuri telling it, maybe not so much, but it was still a brave act by Gorbachev to encourage the publication, the serialization of the book in that newspaper. But Yuri says one of the difficulties at the moment for Ukraine is that one of the conditions of Western arms is that they are only allowed to be deployed within Ukraine's boundaries. And as long as that remains a restriction, and we can understand why that is, because if Ukraine is allowed to make incursions into Russian territory, that might be viewed as provocative and give them justification to attack countries outside of Ukraine. But Yuri says that unless we do allow Ukraine to go further than its own borders, there is a danger that any advances won't be sufficient and, and that Russia will still have the upper hand because it will be able to regroup and launch further attacks into Ukraine. Well, it's, that's true. I think another point here is that 
uh, we getting us back to the terrorist, uh, the whole concept of terrorism. You don't negotiate with terrorists. Uh, any kind of agreements or discussions or negotiations with them are useless because they're simply not sticking to their own words. So uh, agreeing to them to not let Ukrainians shoot into their territories and using it as a reason to protect ourselves from the Russian nuclear attack is an invalid point because they, they do whatever they want. I always say that it's like playing chess uh, with a bear. You know, you're trying to make your move and thinking, you know, along, using the rules that you know, and the, the bear will just simply eat you up or eat up the chessboard. So, basically, yeah, I agree with you, Rafalsinski. Mm-hmm. There was another Fascinating development just a few days ago. Reports that councillors in a district of St. Petersburg, which is Putin's home city, the city where he built his power base and and really kind of honed the origins of the mafia state that Russia became. But councillors in that city have called for Putin to be tried for treason. Now, I can't imagine what bravery it takes at this moment when Russia is at war as a councillor to say that the leader is guilty of treason, but they've done it. Yes, and since then, some Moscow councillors followed the uh, followed the example and did the same. And to be honest with you, I don't have the answer. There's been a lot of talk about that and something that uh, Putin's position is precarious because there were also a lot of um, military trucks and military equipment in Moscow yesterday for the celebration of the city, it's called. So when, as the Russian army was fleeing and running from the Ukrainian army, there were fireworks in Moscow and Putin was attending the celebrations. Um, But there was a talk that maybe the inner circles will try to do something about it uh, and that uh, the address of the councillors in both St. Petersburg and Moscow are indications that something is, you know, out of joint, so to say, uh, in the Denmark of St. Petersburg. But I really don't know. I I can't comment on that. Anything is possible in that place, and nothing makes sense. So, <laughs> Zarina, thank you. Great to speak to you. And do check out Zarina's recent article, Putin's Nuclear Brinkmanship in Ukraine. And we always point people to your articles in Byline Times, both in the print edition and on the website at bylinetimes.com. But we know that you have other outlets as well. The best place for people to start with those is to follow you at Zarina Zabrisky on Twitter. You write for the Euromaidan Press and you've got a regular podcast as well. At, is that a Bywire, is it? Is Bywire News and Bywire News does a lot uh, of projects together with Byline Times. So we all work, you know, to, for the same cause. So there's a uh, lot of. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Well, there's, there's, you know, hopefully there's, there's no room for, for pettiness, you know, in, in this world. We all, we all, <laughs> help, all help each other and, and spread the word about good and important and honest journalism. Uh, really great to hear from you, Serena, as always. And we will stay in touch as well. And don't forget this podcast. Podcast and Byline Radio are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, which distills some of the best articles from our Byline Times website 
and has some exclusive content as well. The Byline Times subscription pays for this podcaster for Byline Radio. So check it out. Go to bylinetimes.com for details of how to subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed. And hello to Heidi Kuda, uh, who I know is listening as well, is going to be chatting to Zarina uh, very shortly, and we'll promote that podcast via our socials as well. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast and Byline Radio. Thanks to Zarina Zabriskie. Thank you to you. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Thank you, Adrian.